Future City is made possible by McCormick and Company. Through its Flavor for Life program, McCormick helps teach kids and families in Baltimore how to replace salt, sugar, and fat. More information can be found at McCormickCorporation.com. Hey there, I'm Wes Moore, and you're listening to Future City here on 88.1 WYPR, the monthly show that explores innovative approaches to Baltimore's most pressing issues and where we move the conversation from what's wrong to what's next. Earlier this month, we watched a mostly white mob descend upon the Capitol, vandalizing the building, threatening to kill members of Congress and the vice president, and attacking police officers, even killing one of them. The deadly mob was driven by Trump's lies about a stolen election, yes, but it was also driven by years' worth of misinformation and conspiracy theories. Later in the show, we'll talk about the proliferation of racist and conspiratorial information online and what is being done to push back against it. But first, I'm joined by a family that knows about racist violence all too well. Rick and Dawn Collins' son, First Lieutenant Richard Collins III, was a 23-year-old student at Bowie State University set to graduate and begin his commission in the United States Army upon graduation. But in 2017, a white University of Maryland student named Sean Urbanski stabbed Collins to death while he was waiting for a rideshare with two friends on the University of Maryland College Park campus. Collins' shocking murder sparked a reckoning at the University of Maryland, in Prince George's County, in the state, and throughout the country, leading to changes in hate crime legislation here in the state of Maryland. I personally and my wife were personally inspired by the courage and the journey of Rick and Dawn Collins, who fought every single day to make sure that not just the legacy of Richie was protected, but to make sure that these type of heinous events and crimes would never have to happen again. And I'm honored that Rick and Dawn Collins are joining us today to talk about their son, his legacy, and what they think that his murder should teach us all. Mr. and Mrs. Collins, thank you so much for joining us and being with us on Future City here today. Well, Wes, thank you for inviting us to uh, share a moment with you and uh, just have a conversation. Well, you know, the, the first thing I would, I would love to do is, um, you know, I think one of the most powerful experiences for me in all this and in getting to know you and, and, and in full disclosure um, to, to the listener uh, you know, I consider Rick and Dawn friends. I know I've learned so much from them, uh, and I continue to. But it was also the power of learning so much about Richie. And and so maybe the first thing we can do is I would ask that you just share with the listeners. Tell us a little bit about your son. What kind of son was he? How do you remember him best? The best thing I could say about Richard I saw him go into Bowie State University as a young man boy. But the day he commissioned into the United States Army, I saw a man, a man that was ready to serve his country and a man who knew he had a purpose and was willing to fulfill that purpose and willing to put in the hard work to be that great man that he aspired to be. 
one thing I've always been I've always been so inspired by is just knowing the history of not just, you know, Richie and his entrance into the service, but then also with your family. You know, people hear me say uh, first lieutenant Collins. And, and the reason is because, you know, last year the Department of Defense announced that it was uh, it was posthumously promoting uh, Richie to first lieutenant. So can you talk a little bit about his desire to serve? his country, and also about the legacy of military service in, in, in your family as well, because he was actually following a path that was laid out before him. The story is uh, my father um, served in the Korean War. He was conscripted back in the 50s and uh, served in a, to my understanding, a field artillery unit in, in the Korean War. And he was discharged shortly after the, I guess, the armistice was signed in uh, 1953 and returned to his hometown, uh, I guess in early 1954, where he then married my mom (laughs) and they were married for about, I guess, four or five months. When then he in turn was also unfortunately shot and killed by a white man in his hometown. So he he survived the Korean War, but couldn't survive uh, the American peace uh, in his own hometown. And I want to add to that, Wes, that did not stop my husband in pursuing the military career. And he's, as as you know, is a retired Navy. And in that, having that, Richard saw that that was a career that he wanted to pursue. And one of the jokes around the house was dad, uh, you know, one day I'm going to outrank you and Rick would always come back with, yeah, you might one day, but it's not today, son. <laughs> but, you know, but it was it was one of the things that just so grabbed me about uh, about your whole family was just this larger commitment to service, this larger commitment to this country, that this is something that was long standing, as you know, as you know. Uh, an old expression my mother used to use is says, you know, that uh, I think about Richie is like, you know, Richie got it honestly. You know, this is this is this ran through him, you know. And so, you know, and, and so what when so what was that? What was that conversation like when he first said, you know, I, I think I want to be an army officer. I think I want to do ROTC. Uh, what, what, what was that conversation like and what was that initial reaction? Well, my initial reaction was, are you sure about that? You know, is it because. You know, I had never seen him commit to anything that serious, and I, I wasn't sure that he understood the uh, ramifications involved in that decision. But he persisted and continued to tell us, yes, that's what he wanted to do. He wanted to join the ROTC uh, in, in college and uh, pursue that uh, ROTC pathway into a commission. So. Once once he convinced us of that, then we were there to support him to to help him achieve that goal. Oh, so he went through MS one, MS two. Yes. So he he I mean, he was all in, and then, and then now he goes through all of these years as MS and and for for you know MS stands for military science, military science one through four. He's now on the brink of beginning a a, a career as an army officer, getting ready to go through his graduation. And then the absolute unthinkable, absolute unthinkable happens. Um, uh, can, can you talk to us and tell us about what happened on May 20, 2017? 
yes, it was a day that it stands out. It was idyllic, you know, because it was in the spring. Uh, it was a beautiful Saturday morning. I'll, I'll never forget, you know, I would gotten up a little early that day because I, I wanted to go out into the yard to sort of check on the uh, sprinkler system. You know, we had just had our sprinkler system turned on for the summer. So I was out checking to make sure all the heads were kind of functioning properly that morning. And um, after being out there for a good 10, 15 minutes, I came back into the house. And uh, actually I was in the process of making grilled cheese sandwiches <laughs> for everybody, you know, for breakfast. And the doorbell rang. And the, the reason that it, that just stands out to me, I remember the day before when we last saw saw our son he had said he was going to be going out and uh, hanging out with some friends to celebrate you know the uh, commissioning that he just had like the day before and uh, that he would be back home uh, Sunday or Saturday morning so when I heard the doorbell ring my first thought was oh that must be him coming home but when I went to the door and opened it there were two Maryland state troopers standing at the door and needless to say I, I could feel my heart sink down into my stomach before they ever spoke a word to me because the knowledge that he had been out all night and he wasn't home yet, it, it just started my mind racing that something really terrible has happened. And uh, sure enough, as they continued, you know, that was a very difficult a difficult meeting with those two officers because I wanted them to tell me, but they refused to tell me. The first thing they asked was anyone else in the house. And yeah, I told them my wife and daughter were at home. They said, well, you need to bring everybody down. I was like, no, tell me first, tell me. And they wouldn't. And they forced me to go get Dawn. I didn't want to, I wanted to be able to share that news. So when I wake her up and, and I told her there were two Maryland police troopers downstairs and needs to say she went hysterical because we both knew he was out that night. And when she came to the top of the stairs, she was screaming and hollering and I was trying to calm her down. And that's when they blurted out that our son had died at approximately three o'clock that morning. And that was it. They told me if I needed, if I wanted to get more details, then I had to go down to the University of Maryland Police Headquarters for for any additional details. So that's where that stood. And the rest of that morning, just it, it was surreal. It was like everything was happening in slow motion from that point on. So needs to say by I guess around eleven o'clock that morning. We finally were able to get down to the Maryland um, University of Maryland police office. And uh, that's where the police chief there told me that my son had been stabbed by a former, former white student and that they were investigating. At that point, nothing was known about what motive was, but uh, that was what happened on that day. And this was literally hours away from having the chance to watch him walk across the graduation stage. 
Yes, actually, uh, within he was scheduled to graduate or march across the, uh, the stage uh, 72 hours later, yeah. but he never made it. Never made it. And as you learned more about what happened, you also learned about um, you learned about the the man who took Richie. You learned about his background and that he had a uh, and 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 he not even hiding it. I mean, he he left behind a a pretty racist online footprint. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about about him and, and what you learned as they started learning as they started identifying more about him and his background? Well, Wes, me personally, I refuse to say the name. In all my thoughts and desires, I refer to him as one thing, monster. Because in my mind, only a monster could do such a heinous thing. We learned that he had some disgusting images on his phone. He was part or like the alt-right Facebook. There's pictures of him doing the Hitler sign. So needless to say, it was quite clear as to what his, his leanings and thoughts were. And it, it was so disgusting to us because Richard was someone that befriended people from all walks of life. And for this to happen at an institution of higher learning, a place where your mind is supposed to go and expand and be open to different people and different ideas, I cannot begin to express the depth of hurt and sorrow. And Rick and I are walking the journey that no parent should ever have to, because as, as I've often said, there were lots of places Rick and I asked Richard to be careful in what he was doing, but not one time did we say, please, don't go to the University of Maryland at College Park because danger lurks. Never heard that this type of heinous culture would be there. And and you know, and you and you've said, Dawn, you said that you know your 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 son's greatest crime was that he said no to a white man. Correct. Literally. That that is what he did. Yes. You know. And the, the 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 pain and the the pain and the hurt that you have and feel it is just it's just heartbreaking to all of us for both of you. Um, but I know you also experienced this as a you know as as not just a not just a mother but a, but as a black woman. Correct. In the United States, I mean, how how do you take and process all of that? That this is both an experience that happened to you as a mother, you, Rick, as a father, but also for you, Dawn, as a black woman in this country in this moment, and for you, Rick, as a black man in this country in this moment. It's interesting that you should say that. Again, 
to me is that the essence of Richard was not seen. It was that they saw, or this monster saw a man of color. Didn't matter who he was. There's something one of the one of the people that we affiliate is Dr. Rayshawn Ray says about this, and he says, you can't outclass racism. The monster didn't know that Richard was a military officer. And, and I always say military officers are the best and the brightest that this country has to offer. But still, that was not good enough for Richard to be able to stand at an institution of higher learning and live and be able to say no. And it's ironic that he was willing to fight for this country, but he could not stand on a street in this country. I'm Wes Moore, and you're listening to Future City here on 88.1 WYPR. I'm speaking to Rick and Dawn Collins, the parents of First Lieutenant Richard Collins III, a Black Bowie State student killed in a racist attack in Prince George's County in 2017. We have to take a brief break, but we'll be right back. Don't go away. Welcome back. I'm Wes Moore, and you're listening to Future City here on 88.1 WYPR. Today on the show, we are exploring both white supremacist violence and online extremism in the U.S. in light of the January 6th attack on the Capitol. I'm speaking to a family who knows about racist violence all too well. Rick and Dawn Collins are the parents of First Lieutenant Richard Collins III, a black Bowie State student killed in a racist attack in Prince George's County in 2017. His killer, Sean Orbanski, was sentenced earlier this month to life imprisonment with the possibility of parole. During the sentencing proceedings, uh, one thing that caught me, you know, Jason Abbott, uh, who's the the principal deputy state's attorney for Prince George's County, he drew connections between the kind of racist social media ecosystem that the killer inhabited and, and, and the white supremacist violence at the Capitol, you know, earlier this month, I wanted to ask you both, do you see the connections? Do you see any connections between the racism that took your son from you and the insurrection that we all witnessed within Washington earlier this month? Absolutely. was. as a matter of fact, I, I look at our son as being, among the first casualties mm. of that assault on the Capitol. Yes. Mm. Little did, could we have imagined when this happened to us that this was part of a larger movement that plagues this nation as was so plainly demonstrated on January 6th of this year. Was well, something that Richard uh, did in one of his training sessions, he wrote me a letter. He was in uh, airborne training down Correct. at uh, Fort, uh, Fort, Fort Benning, yeah, Fort Benning, Georgia. And in the letter, he he one of the statements he makes, "Mom, I understand that I'm a black officer in in this army, but don't worry, I'm going to make it." So that tells me that he encountered some things there. Yeah. He knew that realization 
and still wanted to pursue this military career. You know, despite all the evidence uh, and only and only some of it, did we talk about on this that that this was clearly a racist attack? Uh, yes. You know, hate crime charges against you know against the killer were dropped, but but I think about the fact that despite that, due to you, due to your advocacy, due to your push, um, Maryland passed new hate crime legislation that went into effect last year. And it was named after your son. How does it change how Maryland prosecutes hate crimes? And what does it mean that from now until that it is Richie's name that didn't just inspire the change, but also that is going to uphold it? Yeah, that uh, entire process was sort of an eye-opening experience for, for both of us. Uh, to just see the the sort of sausage making of the state legislature, you know, all of the backroom, you know, handshaking and backslapping that has to go on in order to affect that type of change. But we were very, very pleased when um, the law was was amended, because as the law currently stood, when the trial took place, it required that the individual who um, may be uh, displaying uh, signs of, of racism had to be, it had to demonstrate that it was wholly the reason. And that was the, the bar that wasn't able to be met by the prosecutors. So the, the amendment that we you know, advocated for in the law said that it could be wholly or in part, you know, evidence that demonstrated an individual uh, was uh, motivated by by race and and that's the difference that gives the prosecutors more tools in order to be able to bring to justice those individuals who uh, behave in that manner you did not stop there i mean you've you created a foundation in honor of your son uh you know Bowie and University of Maryland announced a partnership to honor Rich's legacy i mean you all have 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 just been absolutely you know fearless and 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 exhaustive in the way that you say we are going to make sure that not just his memory and his legacy is uh is is remembered but the world will be better uh because of him absolutely uh Wes I don't have to tell you you're a parent and we love Richard with every fiber that we possess. And it was not something that we consciously thought about, but we knew we could not be quiet. You get to a point where you say, enough is enough. I have to do something. You must recognize us. You must understand this is wrong and we cannot continue in this vein. You know, one of the new laws that recently went on the books in in, in Maryland um, requires all police officers to get training at least, you know, three years uh, on recognizing, responding to, reporting hate crimes. Uh, We also know that this is happening in context to the year that 2020 was, where we saw protesters around the country demanding racial justice uh, for the recognition of black lives. Um, for, for, for so many of the things, as you all said, that, that, that 
Richie and his story was really a part of the platform that people were rising up on. Right. He was he was he was part of the momentum, part of the push that that led people to the streets and led people to to demand justice. Um, what role do you think that it's it's both about the role that you think, you know, police should have in stopping hate crimes in the country? But what do you also think about what this movement should also accomplish overall if we're going to get us to where we need to get to? I, I believe it needs to bring this nation to the realizations that citizenship is not something that can be defined by any specific individual based on their own, you know, cultural uh, mindset. You know, a citizen is a citizen regardless of where your your origin is, because ultimately we're all immigrants at some point in our history. You know, for the most part, other than the the indigenous people that were here when the the first boats landed on shore, you know, all of us are, are, all of us are immigrants. And my thought with that is there's, there's too much of this otherism that is identifying people as being other and not a part of your tribe, tribalism, far too much tribalism. And that leads in my opinion to what the, the question you're asking about with hate crimes is, well, that's another tribe. So it's okay if we are excessive in how we respond to that other tribe. And that's what we're trying to do is establish an environment and a culture and bring to bear the, the opportunities to have the conversations that no, that because we are different, you know, ethnically or, or religiously, that's no reason to, to deny another citizens their rights under the law. It's, it's, as my husband just stated, being responsible and being a citizen of the United States. It doesn't say of the white United States or the black United States, it's the United States of America. And we're all part of that America. When I think about the uh, a definition of mine of, of heroism, it is people who have found ways of turning pain into purpose and purpose into progress. And you both, by every definition of it, are heroes of mine. You are heroes of our community. You are heroes of the veterans community. Hmm. You are heroes across the board. And I just could not be more grateful um, to have you in my life and just to be able to be in your presence. I've, uh, I've been speaking to Rick and Dawn Collins, the parents of First Lieutenant Richard Collins III. Um, Rick and Dawn, bless you both. And thank you so much for being with us today and for all the advocacy and the work that you do on behalf of so many. Well, Wes, thank you for having us both. And we count it a blessing to have you and Dawn in our lives as well. God bless you both. Thank you. Bye-bye. We have to take a brief break, but do not go away. When we come back, we'll look at how hate, conspiracy, and misinformation spreads online and spills out in moments like the attack on the Capitol and the controversial ways that tech companies have dealt or have not dealt with the problem. We'll be right back.
Welcome back. I'm Wes Moore, and you're listening to Future City here on 88.1 WYPR. Today on the show, we're looking at white supremacist violence in the light of the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol. Early in the show, we talked to the parents of First Lieutenant Richard Collins III, the young black Bowie State student killed by a white University of Maryland student. His killer, Sean Urbanski, was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole earlier this month. Urbanski was a member of the white supremacist Facebook group called Alt-Reich Nation. Now, we'll take a deeper dive into how hate, conspiracy, and misinformation spreads online and spills out in moments like the attack on the Capitol and the controversial ways that tech companies have dealt or have not dealt with the problem. And we'll hear about the role traditional media, like television, plays here too. Joining us to discuss all of that now, I'm so excited to have Angelo Carison. He's the president and CEO of Media Matters, which is a media watchdog group. Angelo, thank you so much for joining us in this really incredibly important conversation. Thanks for having me. So can you give us a sense of the role that misinformation being shared on mainstream social media outlets like Facebook, like Twitter, played in the events that we saw play out in the Capitol? You wouldn't have been able to have the attack at the Capitol, the storming of the Capitol, um, without, without what social media was able to do in two ways. One, not just saturate the landscape with misinformation and disinformation, um, but also connect otherwise disconnected and disparate audiences and individuals. I mean, so it was both a fuel uh, for, for the events, but, but, but also a key organizing tool. In two, you know, there's a couple ways. One, just the basic nuts and bolts, logistics, um, when, where, you know, what. I mean, they would do Facebook events uh, so that people could attend, you know, say, yeah, I'm going to show up. I'm going to I'm going to go to the March for Trump or I'm going to come to that Stop the Steal rally. Uh, so there were there was lots of events, just actual events that you could use, which is helpful for logistics. Right. Because that's where you give people meeting points. Um, it also helps with promotion. You know, it's really easy to say. Uh, if you're trying to get others to join, to just send them a link, right, which has all the descriptions in it. Um, so, it, I mean, some of it was very basic operational stuff, not, you know, and it, you know, it's how it's used that could be damaging or nefarious. Um, but the other stuff that's more insidious that I think was relevant, but it's also an indicator of, of how we can, you know, have to get better about identifying these things and taking action, most importantly, that the platforms need to, is... You know, these events have been going on for months, you know, since the election ended. And one thing that we noticed was that in a constellation of these sort of private groups, they're closed groups, you know, so you can't read the messages unless you're in them. Um, and uh, but one thing that we noticed inside these groups, because we were in a bunch of them, is in a bunch of pro-gun groups, uh, we started seeing a lot of promotion of the January 6th event. Um, which was distinct from previous March for Trumps. But there was another thing that was very concerning is that we saw a lot of activity uh, within there of people encouraging others to make sure they brought their guns. And that's, that was distinct. And it's relevant because typically when these kinds of events are happening, especially in D.C., you actually see the opposite. You see event organizers and participants reminding others that D.C. gun laws are very strict, so to not bring their gun. And mm-hmm. yet this time it was the opposite. We were seeing a huge amount of chatter and discussion and encouragement for people uh, to bring their guns, emphasizing the importance for them to have their guns there. That was an alarm bell. And when it was brought to Facebook's attention, um, they ignored it. They did nothing. 
And so I, I think it's, it is another illustration of how these, these, these platforms can be used. Well, see, and you just touched on something that I want to I want to delve into a little bit. Where you know, the first is is how did the social media services respond to the Capitol insurrection? And the second question, and kind of dovetailing to that, is who forced them to respond? Was it something that government then intervened? Was it something that they the consumer base intervened? Was it something that the there was a certain enlightenment amongst executives of these social media platforms? What was the response and what triggered it? The response was to start to, was, you know, to, was to react, right? Uh, was to react and to some cases scapegoat. Um, so initially you saw them suspending and banning Trump uh, in some cases. Uh, and then they started to, you know, when you identify other organizers that were connected to the event, what they did is they suspended those accounts or, or would ban them. So they said, hey, here was this bad thing that happened. Uh, and because you were connected with it, we're now going to take away your platform. Um, the thing that that inspired it, you know, I'm sure it's a combination of a lot of things. Clearly, the the public pressure uh, was a piece. Uh, the idea that hey, we have to neutralize the bad PR response. Um, but I do think probably the biggest thing was that in a lot of places it was the employees that mm. they were saying, wait, uh, what you have to do a lot here. Um, and I think that the employees were a huge catalyst in creating some of the more concerted bans that we've seen. Uh, and then the specter that Democrats were taking over, and I think they didn't want to look as though they did not respond effectively. Um, I think that's the wrong metric to be applying to these companies is not how they responded. I think the real metric should be how they prevented. Um, and since they all didn't do that, I think that's what we should be really uh, dealing with. But um, and but I think they understand that that's how they were going to be judged is what they did in those initial days. Mm. It's 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 so interesting you said that because I, I was I did find it fascinating that you saw within you know hours uh, how you had a banning of the former president Donald Trump on, on the site something that others had been calling on for a while but then it also then you know up until that point concerns about things like First Amendment rights and uh, would always come up. But it seemed like that was a turning point where those arguments and those debate turned. It was. And I think that, you know, one thing that I can't ignore and it, it, it just sticks so it, it stuck out so much to me is that, you know, maybe we should listen to the communities that are most affected by this cauldron of misinformation and extremism. Because, you know, when you take away the mechanics of who gets banned and what the rules are, you've had a lot of communities, civil rights communities that have been and advocates that have been saying things are getting worse. Um, This is bubbling over and affecting us. And so and they've laid out prescriptions. um, And then you have research places that can look at how Trump himself, but others were leveraging these algorithms and their platforms to, to target individuals, to target groups. Um, you could see how the two were interplaying, and yet the platforms did nothing. They ignored um, and wouldn't even validate the, the harms that were being raised by these civil rights groups. And then all of a sudden, right, this major thing happens that everybody's laser focused on. And, and when you look at ultimately what the platform's response is, it's to say, what can we do to dial back the pressure just enough so that we're not blamed? And then frankly, I think a lot of them scapegoated parlor, right? Um, you know, Apple sent a letter to Parler uh, for, for, you know, their moderation, but they didn't send a letter to Facebook. And Facebook was much more instrumental in organizing the events on January 6th than Parler was. Um, and yet that was not that I think Parler should, to, to, should avoid scrutiny and any accountability. That's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is, is that 
it was very easy for the more established platforms to say, oh, look, most of this is all about that one really bad thing, when in fact it was actually themselves. The part that really gets me is that, you know, we've always had bad people who believe bad things. What, uh, and they've always had a little pocket. I, I don't know if you can ever stop all of that. But what makes Parler different from, say, Facebook is that Facebook takes those ideas and those people and one, connects them to others that are like them, and two, helps make more people like them. That's the difference. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we saw this with QAnon over the summer. You know, the growth rates for conservative groups on Facebook were about 2%. For news groups and pages were about 0.7%. For left-leaning groups were 1%. QAnon groups had a 24% growth rate over the summer. And we know that the majority of growth actually comes from Facebook's own recommendation engine. Literally, Facebook was building the QAnon movement. They weren't building it on Parler. They were building it on Facebook. Um, their own algorithm was, and they didn't take intervention. So I, I think that's what I worry about what happens when, just like when a virus infects a community, when you take this misinformation and disinformation and you infect a community uh, that has a lot of people susceptible to it, um, it has damaging consequences. And so if it's all quarantined to Parler, um, yeah, it's awful. But at least it's not growing and metastasizing in the way that it is on these other more mainstream platforms. You've been critical about how Facebook in particular handled the QAnon phenomenon last year. What exactly is QAnon and why weren't you pleased with the way that Facebook responded to it? QAnon is a, was, it was a, it's a pro-Trump conspiracy theory that believes that there is a, uh, an online entity named Q that was dropping clues uh, on behalf of Donald Trump. Um, and that they were all there to support him because what Donald Trump was doing was taking down a global group of either interdimensional demons or psychic vampires that were running a massive child sex trafficking ring so that they could feed off of their psychic energy. And, 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 and I know there, there's probably some people who are, who are listening who are just like, you've got to be kidding me. But, but this is not a small phenomenon. This is, this is, this is real. Yeah, it's huge. It's enormous. I mean, there's multiple members of Congress now that are full QAnon adherents. Just this past election cycle, 90 candidates that ran in primaries were QAnon adherents. 24 of them made it to the ballots in November. If any other new movement managed to get 90 candidates in the primaries, 24 on the ballots, people would say, wow, that's success. It's only been around for a year. Wow, look how much they grew. It is quite widespread. You know, my criticism of Facebook was that it had already been identified as a domestic terror threat. I mean, a QAnon adherent took over the Hoover Dam two years ago because he thought if he were to seize the dam, he could pressure the Department of Justice into releasing a secret document that would expose the list of all these demons or vampires. There's a lot of internal debate amongst the community as to whether or not they're vampires or demons. Um, and, but he thought that if he took over the dam, he could get them to release it. And Donald Trump Jr., was one of the people promoting the hashtag associated with that moment. You know, so this is not, this is much more, I think, embedded in our current politics uh, and civic discourse than I think people want to appreciate. And because it feels so fantastic. I mean, I'm talking about demons and vampires here. Um, it's hard for people to take it any, as anything other than the fringe. Um, and it's, a, it's appropriate to think that it belongs on the fringes, but um, that's where power is being organized these days. We do have people who probably have friends and family members who, or, or loved ones um, who are espousing conspiracy theories like the ones we have with, you know, with, with, with QAnon. And, you know, what advice would you give to those folks who have people in their lives 
who are, you know, who, who know that the people in my life, whether it's a family member or a friend or whoever, uh, they believe in these things or they're espousing these, these type of conspiracy theories. What advice would you give to a person who that's their situation? I would there's, there's no advice. Um, because now what I would say is that it depends on how far gone they are. And this is why I'm critical of the platforms because they help move people through the rabbit hole and down it. You know, you don't start out believing in interdimensional demons. Um, you just don't, you you get there over time. Um, and you get there by having the content put to you and by misinformation, distorting and poisoning your worldview. There are people that are in the process of becoming radicalized. And and my advice to them is to give them a pathway in the opposite direction and to not completely shame them and humiliate them and make them feel like they have no other choice but to keep going down that rabbit hole. Um, But look, there are people, and I I, I feel this very personally, um, that and family members that are are gone. And, you know, um, and there's not much you can do except to experience that pain and that loss and that rejection. And um, and for that, I am I am sorry. Uh, And because I, I, I know it's awful. And they're think it is much more widespread than, than people really fully have reckoned with just yet. Mm. I, um, I, I feel like part of the reason that you have people who are, who are reverting to some of these other, you know, some of these extremes is also because there's a, uh, there's a strong distrust for many of mainstream press outlets, much of which is because, I mean, some of which is the, is the fault of some of the press outlets, but there's a larger mistrust that people have. Uh, what do you think is going to be the fallout um, for the future of whether it is a Fox News or the future of a, uh, a, a CNN or a future of, uh, uh, you know, any, you know, an MSNBC, MSNBC? What do you think is the future of mainstream media and press outlets, but who, frankly, were watching uh, a greater sense of distrust from the American people about if about one of the networks, if it does not uh, strongly align with your philosophy? I think that the direction in some ways is that the, you know, what buttresses the national media has always been the local media. And, you know, it's the one thing over this, the last few decades that as trust continued to wane in national press, um, trust was still maintained with local media. And, and the reason they go hand in hand is because I think we're at a tipping point right now where the, the, the rapid erosion of local media, and it's been a trend, but it is eroding now. Um, is that we're going to lose that buttress. And what's going to end up happening is um, national media will lose its ability to provide a consistent worldview, some sort of centering gra- of gravity around facts. I mean, we, we just experienced this with COVID. There was a division between, even amongst the national media outlets, as to how serious COVID was and whether or not it was real. I mean, Fox was calling it a hoax in March. Um, and then in April was saying that if you took hydroxychloroquine, you'd be cured. Um, and, you know, and so there was such a divergence that I, I think where it goes is just like we're seeing online fragmentation and atomization is that at the national outlet, the national level will continue to see that trend of, um, of a weakening of their ability to provide some grounding of what reality is. And, um, I haven't seen any indicators yet that suggest that that trend line is changing. Um, and right now because of the nature of, of the ecosystem, um, it's actually the platforms that have their hand on the wheel and ultimately what they decide and how they shape their algorithm um, and a lot of the policies around this. And this isn't about censorship. It's simply about how they make the decisions 
to connect these things so that they're not exploited and don't use these powerful tools um, to uh, for to actually make things worse. Um, they're the ones that ultimately will set that trajectory. But right now, that 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 has not been course corrected. I've been speaking with Angelo Carasson, who's the president and CEO of Media Matters, uh, a media watchdog group, and and frankly, a, a group whose importance and uh, and necessity to society could not be higher uh, than than now than ever before. So, Angelo, thanks so much for making the time today, and thanks so much for joining us on Future City. Thank you. As always, before we conclude, I'd like to leave you with just a few thoughts. The world that President Biden is inheriting is arguably in more turmoil and in a more complicated spot than any president has had to inherit since maybe FDR. In his first days in office, he was welcomed by news of 900,000 new unemployment claims, a still uncontrolled virus spread and indicators of a more contagious and deadly strain on the loose, a nation deeply distrustful of each other, and a good portion of the population not even believing that he was rightfully elected. A pending impeachment trial of his predecessor, by the way, that's Donald Trump's second in a single term, the educational, long-term educational damage that this virus and the rush push into virtual learning that frankly many families, districts, and students were just left unprepared for. All of this while social media and misinformation campaigns continue to shape and shade our distinct impressions of truth and our paths forward. The role that social media played getting us into this cannot be overstated. When we have greater degree of social separation and that void is filled by screen time mixed with conspiracy theories, we find ourselves relying less on certifiable facts and more on malleable opinion, innuendo, and foundational lies. Yet at the same time, we've seen racial divides deepen in this country and have witnessed a scourge of white supremacist violence, like the hatred that killed First Lieutenant Richard Collins III. And at the same time, despite all that, we've seen that the internet and social media can become places where people can challenge racism, where people can learn about communities beyond their own and challenge their own biases. Last summer, we saw protests against racism organized in large part by people on social media and driven by images and videos, many of which are devastating to watch. Yet they were shared on social media and they got people moving. Social media can be part of the problem of white supremacist violence, misinformation, and conspiracies, but it can also be part of the solution to all of those things. It's up to us to use our power to push social media platforms to be less destructive and for all of us to help build a better world, both online and off. Future City is produced and edited by Mark Gunnery. We welcome your feedback and you can email us with your thoughts and questions about the show at futurecity at wypr.org. Also, Please feel free to contact me directly on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at I am Westmore. If you want to learn more about some of the people and organizations that you heard from today, or you want to listen to previous episodes, please visit WYPR.org and look for Future City under the Programs and Features tab. Future City airs here on WYPR on the fourth Wednesday of each month at 1 p.m. and then again at 9 p.m. Again, until next time. For 881 WYPR, 
your NPR news station. I'm Westmore. Future City is made possible by McCormick and Company. Through its Flavor for Life program, McCormick helps teach kids and families in Baltimore how to replace salt, sugar, and fat. More information can be found at McCormickCorporation.com.